Arnold Palmer, a true icon of sports history and one of the most beloved golfers to ever play. On a special in-depth, we look back on the life of the late Hall of Famer who died in September 2016. From his humble beginnings, Our family uh, had no money most of our early lives. To the lasting influence of his father. When you won that, what did your dad say to you afterwards? Nice corn, boy. That's all he said. We'll relive the journey that made Palmer a legendary competitor on the course. How would you describe the emotion of winning your first Masters? It was uh, probably the biggest thrill of my life. And one of the most popular athletes of all time. We sat down with Palmer in August 2015 in his hometown of Latrobe, Pennsylvania, at the same course where his father worked and lived and brought up a young Arnold to love the game. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I actually um, wanted to start off by talking politics with you in terms of presidents you've uh, spent time with over the years. Tell, if you don't mind, about the first letter you received from Dwight Eisenhower, then president. Well, uh, he invited me to play golf with him at Augusta. And of course, that was quite a thrill. And, and I accepted very readily. What was that like? Well, it was great. Uh, of course, uh, I had been around presidents before, but not quite like uh, Ike and uh, with all the Secret Service men and everybody there. It was, it was quite a thrill. And, and he is so uh, great a man that he made you feel pretty proud just to be with him and talk to him. And that was fun. You wrote in your autobiography that your relationship with him, quote, eclipsed any relationship I'd ever had with an older man besides my father. How so? Well, he was just a great guy to know and to talk to, and he made you feel uh, great. He made me feel very proud that I knew him and that I was able to talk to him uh, the way I did. And of course, the only guy that I really ever talked quite like I talked to the president was my father. What sorts of discussions would the two of you had? Oh, it, it ranged from everything to you, you name it, from golf to personal relationships, uh, to how I felt about the world, uh, uh, if you're referring to Ike and uh, mostly uh, golf business, and he wanted to know as much as you'd tell him about the, the golf game, and I did. I told him things that I really probably never told anybody else. Well, what did he want to know? Oh, he wanted to know everything I thought when I was playing, uh, how I approached the game, uh, how I approached people, uh, that were associated with the game and uh, things that uh, most people wouldn't even think about asking. What do you recall from your 37th birthday surprise? Well, that was very special. Uh, I was going to Laurel Valley uh, that day uh, to play a uh, 
a round of golf with some of the members, and uh, I was on my way out the door, and uh, my wife was sort of holding me up, and I couldn't figure out why she was holding me up, and I, I said, uh, Winnie, I, I've got to go. I got a good golf game this afternoon. And, well, she says, don't rush, just, just wait a minute. And she was delaying me for a purpose. And the purpose was that she knew what I didn't know, and that was that President Eisenhower was flying in on my airplane to greet me for my birthday and spend the day with me at Laurel and uh, around the house and, and just doing things that men do. And uh, finally, I just said, I gotta go. And about that time, there was a knock on the door. And I said, I'll get it on the way out. And when I got to the door, it was a screen door. And uh, there standing in a, in a leather flight jacket was the president. Uh, and he, was <laughs> he looked great. And he, his first remark was, you suppose you could put an old man up for the weekend? <laughs> and, and of course, that thrilled me to death. And, and I said, naturally, come on in. And he came in, and then we started talking about what we were going to do. That Congressional Medal Ceremony Day, when you were being honored, how much did it mean to you? I can't tell you how proud I am to be an American, and how proud I am of the, the, the medals that I won from from the presidents of the United States, and the, the Congressional Medal, the uh, things that, that are things that, that you just you, you, you shove away and just say, I'm thankful for the fact that I was fortunate enough to win them. What about it touches you? Well, the fact that, that uh, Congress and the United States and the people have endorsed uh, uh, an athlete uh, to receive these medals uh, is something uh, beyond belief. And I am extremely proud to have been there, done that as President Eisenhower, you know, knowing him, being with him, having him call me his friend. How can you say how much it means? What do you remember from speaking to Congress uh, on what would have been his 100th birthday? Well, that was, I was pretty nervous about it, and, uh, and I was thrilled also. And, and what I did was just talk about Ike and uh, my association with him and, and the things that I remember that he said and did that were so just absolutely fantastic uh, uh, things about his life and uh, not too much personal stuff, but more uh, what he was doing, how he uh, conducted his life and uh, and everything that he said was, I just hung on like a, uh, I couldn't hear enough. And, uh, and I felt great about it too. Uh, and so I talked about all the things that we talked about, whether it was eating food or playing golf or uh, 
the clubs we used to play golf and, and so on for a long time. President Richard Nixon once invited you and Bob Hope to his San Clemente home where he had his team of senior advisors gathered, uh, advisor Henry Kissinger, Vice President Gerald Ford, other national security folks. What was discussed there? Well, it was, uh, it was a sort of a summit meeting, you might call it, uh, with those people. And, uh, and it was concerning uh, the war that was going on and, and how to conclude it as quickly as possible with the least loss that we could suffer. And, and, and that was what we discussed. Uh, my recommendation was uh, uh, some of the low-altitude uh, bombings and things like that. And, and we talked about everything in the war, how to save lives, how to uh, get the war over with and, and come home. How surprised at the time were you to be invited to participate in that? Well, I was too, but uh, they knew that I was a pilot and I enjoyed fighter airplanes and fighter aircraft, and, and then I did fly a lot. So that was part of the reason, I, I assume. You worked with uh, the late Mark McCormick for many years, the legendary agent who kind of, in a sense, pioneered the industry and, you know, first obviously the two of you working together and then his creation of the global sports and entertainment management firm, IMG. What do you think made the relationship the two of you had so successful? Well, I can only uh, guess on part of that, but one thing, uh, when, when we made our deal, uh, I just said to Mark wanted to do a contract. And I said, you don't need to do a contract. We'll just shake hands on what we agree on, and if there's ever a difference, we'll talk it out. And, and, and he agreed to that, so we shook hands on the, on the deal, and it lasted until he passed. D during a time when athletes just did not have agents, that was something completely new. What made you decide to take him on as your agent? Well, I knew him when he was at William & Mary, went to school there, and he played on the golf team, and I played on the Wake Forest golf team. and uh, We've become friends from a distance, uh, and... Uh, we talked occasionally, and that uh, started the relationship. And, and then, of course, the fact that, that, he, uh, that we were both out of school now and into our lives uh, of business, and, uh, and we're now going to be doing something uh, that is meaningful to both of us. So uh, it worked very well. He, he stuck with the deal that we made. And uh, when he started to branch out, or what he thought was branching out, he had to come and see me to make sure that I would approve of what he was doing. And uh, in, the, in the instance of Jack Nicholas, uh, I agreed it was okay if he represented Jack. And Gary Player, and, 
And I, if, as I recall, I think Doug Sanders was one of the guys that, that he uh, was helping a little bit, and so on. Tell about the conversation the two of you had at the Plaza Hotel Bar. Oh, he was talking about my going, uh, uh, leaving Wilson, or going further with them. And he was asking me for permission uh, to go talk to uh, Mr. Bowman, who was president of Wilson. And finally, I agreed to that. And uh, he went and made an appointment. And, and uh, in short, uh, he made a deal with uh, Wilson Sporting Goods for me. And it was a pretty much a lifetime deal. And, uh, and he called me one day and he said, uh, Arne, he says, I got a, a deal with Wilson for you. He says, you and I need to go see uh, Judge Cooney, who is uh, the chairman of the board uh, for final approval of this uh, deal. And so we went to Chicago and met with Judge Cooney. And uh, of course, the way I tell it to some of my friends was, I learned what a lecture really sounds like. <laughs> and uh, what did what did he say? Well, he just told me that he had all the best golfers in the world, and he didn't need me. <laughs> he had Sam Snead, Gene Sarazen, and Patty Berg, and oh, all those good golfers, and and for the deal that we had worked out, uh, it was a little beyond. He didn't think that, that they needed my expertise in their staff. What are you thinking to yourself as he's saying all this to you? I thought, yay, hi. I felt very, uh, I was mad at Mark, for one, for thinking that he had made a deal. Uh, with Wilson for me for life. And, uh, and, and of course, when this all came up, and it did, and it was hashed around, and that we ended up walking out with nothing. How was it, though, almost a blessing in disguise? Well, of course, I've often wondered uh, that question myself. You have? I often wondered what it would have been like had I stayed with, uh, with that deal if, if it had worked. But it, they turned it down. They didn't want it. And uh, everything I had won up until then was with Wilson equipment. I won the golf balls, the clubs, bags, everything. And I now had nothing. I had to start over. Uh, I was angry. And uh, I say angry because they had made Mark think he had a deal. Mm -hmm. He didn't, and I didn't, and we were starting over. But that ended it right there. It ended everything. And, uh, and of course, immediately upon leaving, we started negotiating to make new deals. Well, and it freed you up to be able to do 
so many other deals, which right. ultimately Absolutely. led to all the sponsorship success you've since been able to have. I'm not unhappy at all, uh, having done all these years uh, without the, the association. And you now have hundreds of Arnold Palmer, you know, stores uh, internationally selling your clothing and apparel. How do you go about deciding what business ventures to get involved in? Generally, it was things that I used some one way or another, and that was the decision that I usually made. If I didn't use it or if I didn't like it, uh, I didn't make a deal. And really, it's just living up to yourself, making yourself uh, honest and feel like you were doing the right thing. I want to talk to you about some notable moments from your career. The latter two moments I'm going to mention being a couple of the biggest highlights. The first one perhaps being one of the lower points, and that being the 1966 U.S. Open. Um, you lose a six-shot lead, uh, six holes to go. Um, explain what you're thinking uh, walking up the 18th fairway. I missed a couple putts, made some mistakes, but under normal conditions, uh, you know, who's going to shoot the kind of golf that Bill Casper shot in that last nine holes? That was exceptional, good golf, and some great putting and uh, great playing to tie me. And uh, I missed a little putt at 17, I remember about a three or four footer and uh, right straight uphill and I, I was mad at myself for that because at the time I thought, well, that might be the open right there, but it didn't uh, happen to be. We tied and, and of course then I lost in the playoff again, but uh, it was hard on me for a while. It was, uh, it was one of the biggest defeats of my life, and uh, and it was the National Open. It was something that uh, was very, very important. And to say that I had lost the Open, I did. And uh, I played poorly in the nine holes after having played very well uh, during the tournament. And there was nothing I could do about it, and I said, well, as my father always said, just grin and get on and get to the next tournament. What was the toughest part of handling kind of the aftermath of the loss? Well, most uh, of the people that uh, were my friends, they didn't, didn't change them. They were still my friends, and I was thankful for that. And it encouraged me to go on and play some more golf and and play better golf, which I did. And I won after that. So it wasn't the end of the world. It felt like it for a while, but it wasn't the end of the world. And as I went on and on and won some more tournaments and, and had a pretty good career, I was thankful. Uh, the National Amateur Championship, uh, when you won that, what did your dad say to you afterwards? Nice going, boy. 
And that's all he said. But that, in a way, wasn't that the first time he complimented you? My father was very tough. He was never one for throwing out rewards or uh, congratulations. And, and, and when he said, nice going, boy, I knew what it meant. And I felt it, and I was grateful. Uh, your longtime uh, assistant, uh, Doc Giffen, uh, was qu quoted as saying, um, without winning that, you may not have had the confidence to turn pro. Um, how, to, to what extent would you agree? Well, uh, I called it the turning point. And uh, it was the turning point in the way it, it gave me uh, the confidence that I needed to go ahead, turn pro, and get on the tour and play. And of course, with the contract that I had with Wilson, which goes back a few years, uh, it was pretty restricted because uh, I wasn't getting a lot of money. I was getting enough to survive. And people may forget the money you could make uh, playing on the PGA Tour back then when you were first starting out, it's unlike anything the players are making today. I mean, you're driving from uh, tournament to tournament with a, a, a trailer on your car, staying in motels, just literally trying to make uh, ends meet. And I managed, and then I ran into a man by the name of Spencer Olin, chairman of uh, Olin Madison Chemical Company out of St. Louis, and I played with him in the uh, uh, Greenbrier tournament, and it was a pro-am, and, and we did pretty well. And he shared uh, his winnings with me, which was strictly amateur, and uh, and I was I made some money, and I felt like I was now ready to go. The Masters. What do you recall from driving up? Magnolia Lane into Augusta National for the first time? Well, it was, uh, of course, the greatest thrill of my life, uh, going to Augusta to play in the Masters. And, and of course, I remember Magnolia Lane very well uh, with the trees and, and all the things that happened. And, and then getting on the golf course and seeing the golf course. and. Uh, I uh, remember Ed Dudley was the pro at the time at uh, Augusta, and it was a thrill seeing him. And uh, just being at Augusta uh, made me feel like I'd made some accomplishment. Bobby Jones, Ben Hogan, Sam Sneed, Byron Nelson, as a young guy, when you get there, not only see them, but see them all chatting with each other. What's that like? It's a thrill. Uh, you know, I was raised the son of a golf pro, as you know, and, and we used to talk about these people that you just mentioned. And, uh, and I read Byron Nelson's book, and I read uh, some of Sarzen, and I read Jones. And, and I remember things that happened to them in their uh, golfing prowess, and, uh, and I was thrilled. And then to know them, see them, play with them, uh, 
uh, eat with them was the greatest thrill of my life. Why did it bother you that Ben Hogan never called you by your real name? Well, that's funny because it, it did bother me. Uh, and I wasn't ever quite sure why he didn't, but uh, till the day he passed, I never remember him calling my name out and pronouncing my name, Arnold or Palmer. Or, I was hey you or something like that all the time. And, and I objected to it, but there was nothing I could do about it. What was your reaction when you overheard him at the Masters questioning how the heck you got there? Well, uh, geez, I didn't know you knew that, but that uh, he was with my friend, uh, Jackie Burke. And he said uh, his exact remarks were, how in the hell did he get in the Masters? And, and of course, when I won the uh, Masters, uh, I, I personally had a little personal satisfaction uh, from that. But as it turned out, uh, Hogan and I became friends. We weren't, I never held a bitterness or anything against him. Uh, uh, I thought he was a great talent, a great player. He proved he was a great player. Uh, and, and I accepted that and accepted him. He, he did his thing, I did mine. How would you describe the emotion of winning your first Masters? Well, you, know, you, you can't put it into words. It was a, it was a thrill. I was uh, so pleased to just be there and be playing at Augusta. And then when I won and, and uh, had the good fortune to win the second time, it was uh, probably the biggest thrill of my life. Jack Nicholas, whether it be in the business world or on the golf course, what about the rivalry did you find motivating? Just the fact that he was so good, that he was a, he was a great player and, and he had a knack for playing the game of golf and played it very, very well. And the fact that, I, that I paid, once in a while I beat him, it was, uh, that was something that I was very proud of. We were friends from the beginning, from the day he turned pro. And that friendship has lasted through all these years. And I'm very pleased and, and proud to say that I'm a friend of Jack's and, and he's a friend of mine and, and that we've gotten along as well as we have. It doesn't make us uncompetitive. We are, we, when we play against each other, we play as hard as we can play and we have all our lives. But it didn't affect the fact that we went out and uh, went in a bar room and had a beer or uh, uh, occasionally I said, Jack, you got the ball too far forward in your stance, move it back a little bit and you'll hit that driver better. And he did, and he, it, it was, that was the problem. It wasn't, so we helped each other. Uh, and, and that was part of our friendship. That's what makes the game of golf so great and what uh, will always make it great. 
It, it was six years between your first major win and your last major win, uh, 24 years between Jack's first and last. You've obviously had far more uh, business success uh, than he has uh, you know, since playing. But I, I was speaking to somebody close to you the other day who said deep down you would probably think that Jack put more time into uh, his playing game than you did. How true do you think that is? Well, I think he practiced a lot, but I don't think he practiced more than I okay. did. I don't think that's, that's just a figment of your imagination or someone's imagination because uh, I practiced a lot. And the first year I was on the tour, uh, those hands were raw from practicing and playing, and uh, both shoulders were uh, sore from the, the bones, and I had to have cortisone shots. And so all of the above is, is just a question of uh, what really happened. And uh, Jack, I think, had some problems uh, the same way, and, uh, and as I did. But the fact is that, that that's the game of golf. And the, the fact that we can, I can say, I can say if I needed some help, I could go to Nicholas. The funeral of your late wife, Winnie, conflicted on uh, the final day of tour qualifying school for Jack's son. Um, Jack had been, at, you know, at all days of the tour qualifying school, but him and his wife obviously uh, skipped the final day of tour qualifying school, fly out to uh, the funeral, and afterwards, uh, you and Jack uh, are sitting in front of a television watching his son uh, on TV, who ultimately ends up, you know, qualifying for the tour. The two of you have your arms around each other in tears. How would you describe the emotion of that? Well, <laughs> You know, you. It's like my grandson is on the tour now, and and he misses from time to time, and I see Jack rooting for him, uh, and it's the same as my rooting for uh, Gary or Jack or any of the Nicholases. Uh, it's something you wish them well. You want to see them succeed. And you, you want to be proud of that. And, and I think that rooting for them uh, means a lot more than anything you can do. What do you think is responsible for your success? My father. Because of everything he taught you? Absolutely. How would you describe what he was like? Well, he was, he was a tough, hardworking golf pro. And he learned both ends of the business the hard way, by experience and by personal uh, work and, and, and fun. And, uh, and he was tough. He never, he never let up. He stayed tough uh, all his life. And as a matter of fact, I think about it. Uh, he died a tough guy. He played 27 holes of golf the day he passed, and he was tough. 
What do you think you most learned from him? Oh, he was honest. And uh, he was probably as honest uh, as I've ever seen anyone. He, he said it the way it was. He did it the way it was. Uh, he, he helped everybody he could. Uh, he contributed. Uh, probably the toughest guy that he dealt with was his son. Uh, Why did your father say you were uh, his worst hire ever to run the golf oh, pro shop? Well, he picked on me. Uh, as I said, his son, uh, he was tough on me. He, he never backed off. Uh, he, uh, he played tough, worked hard, and died hard. Um, b between growing up in the Depression, having, you know, not a lot of money when you were younger, and even those early tour days when you know, funds were scarce. What did that teach you about savings? Well, of course, in my family, my father and our, and our family uh, had no money most of our early lives. We, we would come out and hunt rabbits and pheasants and, uh, and take them home, and my mother would soak them in salt water overnight, and, and we'd eat them the next day. And that was great stuff. Uh, but that was part of all of the education. Uh, and, and my father, when he bought uh, groceries, if he didn't have enough money to pay for it, I, I remember him scraping up enough money to go pay the bill. And, and he did. And he, he, he sacrificed the things that he liked to pay the bills for groceries that we ate. And that was his life. That was the way he lived in the early days. And, and of course, he told me how he appreciated uh, the fact that he was lucky enough to be a golf pro and to uh, be able to make a living doing what he was doing. I know not too long ago you had, I believe, like a four-hour dinner with Rory McIlroy. What did you guys chat about? Oh, we talked about everything, about the game of golf, what an opportunity he has to uh, be a great, great player. And, and of course, I have to say that, that uh, my admiration for him is very big. And he is a good player. He'll be a good player. And, and I just wish him all the luck in the world. What do you like about him? He's a nice guy. Uh, I see... Uh, Roy, I think he's got a great future, and I think he's a great personality, and I think he can set some standards for the game. Why do you still, every week, write a letter to the winner of the tournament? Well, I think that it's always nice to receive a letter from someone that uh, is, has been there, done that, and uh, is appreciative. Uh, the ones that I've received over the years, I am most thankful for and I remember. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.